a big data revolution is coming, whether we like it or not. And a lot of people are scared for good reason. I mean, governments and corporations are learning how to predict your behavior before you even think about it. But big data could also save lives and cure diseases. So it's up to us right now to decide how this data will be used and by whom. This episode is called Big Data Revolution, and it originally aired in September 2016. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So you probably don't think about this too much, but data is everywhere. Without even knowing it, we've sort of crept into this era where data all of a sudden is ambient. It's everywhere we go. This is data analyst Susan Ettlinger. So as we walk around every single day, our locations are tracked. Um, the apps that we use are being tracked. If you are on a website, anything that you do on that website is likely being tracked. Uh, if we walk by surveillance cameras, if we get in a car that has a GPS, you have any kind of medical device, run a red light, there's a camera. Uh, so data's everywhere. Yeah. Some people call this digital exhaust, you know, the idea that you're sort of walking around and these sort of particles of data are surrounding you all the time. Just coming out, out of you, yeah. That's right, everywhere we go. And I don't think it's possible for any individual person to truly understand everything that they are creating at any given time. And sure, we all kind of know this is going on, but increasingly, we don't have to understand it. As we'll explore this episode, technology is doing that for us. So in 10 years, the amount of information that you will have of yourself will be uncomputable by a human being. Which means we're learning more about our world. These data will let us understand how we form. And beyond. How our solar system formed to understand our place in the universe. But the trick is knowing the difference between a lot of data and too much information. Data doesn't exist, okay? Information exists, and it's ephemeral. And when we capture it, it's data. So this episode, ideas about big data, taking huge amounts of information and making sense of it. What's great about it is when we think about the ability, for example, to sequence the human genome or to look at the universe or the ways in which we could use data to look at epidemics and the spread of disease or even the spread of ideas, you know, that can make a tremendous difference. And so I do think we have this wonderful kind of tool at our fingertips. We just have to be, I think, a little bit careful with it. Susan Ellinger returns later to describe why exactly we need to be careful. But first, let's just say big data is like is like a super boring term, right? <laughs> like, I don't even know if people uh, are going to like download this episode. It is the most vibrant thing happening in the world today. This is Kenneth Kukier. He's a senior editor at The Economist and co-author of the book Big Data, where he wrote about how all that data flying off of us all the time, that kind of digital exhaust is changing the way we live. If every aspect of living gets this shadow to it, this veneer of data, suddenly we can learn new things that we never could before. And I see it as part of this sort of timeless march that we've been on of improving our society by applying our reason to it and our technical skills to it. And how are technical skills? They're really the skills we're building into our computers to process huge amounts of data in a way the human brain never could. Kenneth explained all this on the TED stage. So what is the value of big data? Well, think about it. You have more information. You can do things that you couldn't do before. One of the most impressive areas where this concept is taking place is in the area of machine learning. 
Okay, machine learning is a branch of artificial intelligence, which itself is a branch of computer science. The general idea is that instead of instructing a computer what to do, we're going to simply throw data at the problem and tell the computer to figure it out for itself. And it'll help you understand it by seeing its origins. Okay. In the 1950s, a computer scientist at IBM named Arthur Samuel liked to play checkers, so he wrote a computer program so he could play against the computer. He played, he won. He played, he won. Because the computer only knew what a legal move was. So he wrote a small subprogram alongside it, operated in the background, and all it did was score the probability that a given board configuration would likely lead to a winning board versus a losing board after every move. And then Arthur Samuel leaves the computer to play itself. It plays itself, it collects more data. It collects more data, it increases the accuracy of its prediction. And then Arthur Samuel goes back to the computer, and he plays it, and he loses. And he plays it, and he loses. And he plays it, and he loses. And Arthur Samuel has created a machine that it surpasses his ability in a task that he taught it. And this idea of machine learning is going everywhere. How do you think we have self-driving cars? We change the nature of problem from one in which we try to overtly and explicitly explain to the computer how to drive, to one in which we say, here's a lot of data around the vehicle, you figure it out. You figure it out that that is a traffic light, that that traffic light is red and not green, that that means that you need to stop and not go forward. Big data is going to transform how we live, how we work, and how we think. Okay, so like 50 years from now, what, what, what's something else that, that's going to improve our lives because of big data, like, you know, like something in our everyday routine? So an example will be, I'll have a toilet, or I'll have a faucet that will be running water for me to wash my hands. When I do that, I'll probably have a sensor that will be taking a look at my cell follicles that come down, and it'll be analyzing my biochemistry. The toilet might turn out to be sort of the centerpiece of the home in terms of healthcare because you could actually monitor a stool sample uh, on a daily basis. If we did it every day, we might learn something about the progression of disease that we didn't know before. And so where today that information doesn't help us because we can't spot the signal that predicts, say, pancreatic cancer two years out until symptoms exist, now we will be able to spot it because we'll actually have learned something new, we'll have done something at a different scale, in this case, analyzing people and their health. That, that's amazing because that's just one small example, right? So, I mean, are we talking about changes in the future on like a scale of the industrial age or, or, or the information age? Okay, so it's a great question. The printing press was in some ways the first big data revolution because the time to produce a book and the cost of a book you know, just fell through the floor. Immediately, the very first thing we started doing was we were printing Bibles, the same things that the scribes were writing, but it just cost a lot less, so we had more Bibles around. But when we had more Bibles in circulation, we had more people who could read it and more people who wanted to read the Bible, and therefore, we had a greater thirst for literacy. There was a kind of a, a movement towards mass literacy. Soon thereafter, it wasn't about Bibles, it was the production of other works, new works that we couldn't have ever even imagined. So the idea is that when we increase the amount of something, and here the amount of printed works, we didn't just replicate what we were already doing and get the efficiency gain of lowering the price, increasing the volume, there was a state change. Likewise, I think that we're in the very early stages of this same sort of revolution. You could consider it, if you will, the great age of discovery of machine learning and of big data. We're going to do entirely new things because of it. Now there are dark sides to big data as well. It will improve our lives, but there are problems that we need to be conscious of. And the first one is the idea that we may be punished for predictions, that the police may use big data for their purposes, a little bit like Minority Report. Now, it's a term called predictive policing, or algorithmic criminology, and the idea is that if we take a lot of data, for example, where past crimes have been, we know where to send the patrols. That makes sense. But the problem, of course, is that it's not simply going to stop on location data. 
it's going to go down to the level of the individual. Why don't we use data about the person's high school transcript? Maybe we should use the fact they're unemployed or not, their credit score, their web surfing behavior, whether they're up late at night. Their Fitbit, when it's able to identify biochemistries, will show that they have aggressive thoughts. We may have algorithms that are likely to predict what we are about to do, and we may be held accountable before we've actually acted. Privacy was the central challenge in a small data era. In the big data age, the challenge will be safeguarding free will, moral choice, human volition, human agency. So, Kenneth, you're talking about things like, like my credit score and my sleep habits. And I mean, all this is data that's being collected from me, from, from everyone. So, I mean, is it even possible to, to opt out of any of this? I don't think you can. You could say, well, maybe this is similar to opting out of the internet. Well, you can do that. It's hard to live in the 20th century if you do, but it's possible. But I believe that big data, if you will, it's sort of like saying I want to opt out of the right angle or I want to opt out of mathematics. Life's already a complicated place. If you're going to be nervous about all of these features of living that are just going to be underneath the surface as the fabric of how things happen, life is going to become paralyzing. And I think we're in a transition, so I can appreciate why people are a bit nervous to it. But at the end of the day, if they wheel you into on a gurney into the emergency ward and you have a choice, you can have the medical system of the Middle Ages or you can have the medical system of the 21st century, you don't even have to know or care how this stuff works. You're probably just going to say, yeah, give me the anesthesia and save my life because big data is going to transform so many features of our lives that we're all going to simply accept the modern because the outcomes usually will be far, far better than they ever could have been if we didn't. I just wonder if big data is a gentler version of Big Brother. The true answer is maybe. The Snowden affair should give everyone pause. I mean, it was sad that it became politicized because what this fellow was saying was not that we were living in a turnkey totalitarian state, but that we were laying the infrastructure for this to happen. Because if we're going to accept big data and all the benefits that we can use it for. We need limitations so that we can preserve our fundamental freedoms. And if we don't have that, then these technologies can absolutely be used to the detriment of human beings. And we can't let that happen. So to cap it, I completely respect the idea that big data seems like a repackaging of Big Brother, but we can certainly go beyond that simple dualism to deal with the real substantive problems that we have. You you think that the benefits of this are so incredible that they just dwarf any downsides. No, I think that the benefits are just so incredible that we absolutely must address these downsides or we can't unlock these benefits and we would be a stupid society if we didn't get these benefits. Kenneth Couquier is co-author of the book Big Data. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. Back in a moment with more ideas about big data. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, 23andMe.com. Here's 23andMe customer Winnie on growing up adopted and finding her birth family. I was adopted by a wonderful family, but I was different. And then through DNA testing with 23andMe, I found another family who had no idea that I even existed. And it's so interesting when I'm with my new siblings, my half-siblings now, they'll say, Winnie, do that again. Winnie, say that again. And they said, that's just exactly what our mom would have done. And I never met her. So, you know, there's so much more in your genes than you can even begin to think are there. Because everyone's DNA is unique, your experience could be different. To discover your DNA story, visit 23andMe.com to learn more. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, 
ideas about how big data is helping us understand our world and ourselves. Do you think it's fair to say that 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 human beings are basically uh, like the equivalent of ones and zeros? Well, we we are. I guess many people will say that we are a little more, but uh, in a way, we are an expression of how nature is uh, is playing its own game. We are, in a way, a biological representation of an underlying set of rules that works with numbers. And, and uh, for me, is one of the most beautiful complexity that you can ever think of. is mesmerizing. This is Riccardo Sabatini, and by training, he's a physicist. Yeah, I'm a theoretical physicist by training, indeed. Ricardo works at a company called Human Longevity, and there he applies physics to process, manage, and understand one of the most complicated data sets out there, the human genome. That's the most amazing thing that happened at the beginning of this millennia. We started to have access to the digital representation of our genome. We started to digitalize matter. We have digital representation of atoms and proteins. We are starting to digitalize life. And digitizing life, understanding the data that makes up our genome, means that we can study how to make our lives better and healthier. And it's something Ricardo has been working on for years now, as he explained on the TED stage. So for me, everything started many, many years ago when I met the first 3D printer. The concept was fascinating. A 3D printer needs three elements, a bit of information, some raw material, some energy, and it can produce any object that was not there before. When I realized that I actually always knew a 3D printer, and everyone does, it was my mom. So my mom <laughs> takes uh, three elements. A bit of information is between my father and my mom, in this case, raw elements and energy in the same media, that is food, and after several months, produces me. And I was not existing before. Well, what amount of information takes to build and assemble a human? Is it much? Is it little? How many thumb drives you can fill? Okay. Now you can run some numbers, and that happens uh, to be a quite an astonishing number. So the number of uh, atoms, uh, the file that I will save in my thumb drive to assemble a little baby, it will actually fill uh, an entire Titanic of thumb drives, multiplied 2,000 times. This is the miracle of life. Every time you see from now on a pregnant lady, she's assembling the biggest amount of information that you will ever encounter. Forget big data, forget anything you have heard of. This is the biggest amount of information that exists. This is unbelievable. I mean, the, the amount of data it takes to create each human being, each and every single one of us, would be the equivalent to 2,000 Titanics filled with thumb drives? Exactly. So could you even begin to compare the, the amount of data that we generate versus the amount of uh, data that a computer generates? Oh, no. I think, I mean, the order of magnitude of, of how complicated we are is something that will eat every single database that we know. <laughs> wow. The mo in, in year 2020, we believe that we will have sequenced the uh, let's say, several hundred million genomes, or, or, or at that point, uh, YouTube uh, will look like a, a small hard drive of a kid. I mean, the amount of data that we will require to map uh, the human diversity will overrun every single database that we ever encountered before. Hmm. It's the biggest data that you can ever think of. Yeah, so if each human is 2,000 Titanic ships filled with hard drives, uh, Uh, how do you process that? Yeah, the nice thing is that nature is much smarter than, than a theoretical physicist. So he found a, a language to embed and compress uh, this complexity in, in a much compact form. And that's what is uh, the DNA, hmm. the very fundamental part uh, that gives the instructions uh, to make the 2000 Titanic work. I got you. So the DNA is, is like a compressed version of those uh, 2000 Titanics? So the DNA is much shorter, much more complex, and much more compact. And in February, we decided to print it to actually show in books how large is an instruction manual. And uh, it's about 3 billion letters. Wow. And if you print them at character 6, it happens to be... 262,640 pages, the precise instruction manual to rebuild the Craig of Enter. 
Craig Venter, the uh, the famous geneticist who was, uh, I guess, one of the first to, to map the human genome. Yes. So you actually printed out the three billion letters of Craig Venter's DNA? Exactly. And like how many volumes did it take? Yeah. <laughs> 175 volumes of 1,600 pages. Like encyclopedia size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So welcome on stage, Dr. Craig Venter. And you wheeled these out, Craig Venter's genome, yeah, yeah, onto yeah. the uh, TED stage. Exactly. Not the man in his flesh, but for the first time in history, this is the genome of a specific human printed page by page, letter by letter. 262,000 pages of information, 450 kilograms. And now for the first time I can do something funny. I can actually poke inside it and read. So let me take uh, some interesting book uh, like this one. Chromosome 14, book 132. <laughs> A-T-T-C-T-T-G-A-T-T. This human is lucky. Because if you will miss just two letters in this position, two letters over three billion, he will be condemned to a terrible disease, cystic fibrosis. We have no cure for it, we don't know how to solve it, and it's just two letters of difference for what we are. So, now that I have your attention, the next question is, how do I read it? How do I make sense out of it? Well, for how good you can be assembling Swedish furniture, this instruction manual is nothing you can crack in your life. And so we're going to use a technology called machine learning. Okay? We build a machine and we train a machine, well, not exactly one machine, many, many machines, to try to understand what are those letters and what do they do. So we asked, can we read the books and predict your height? Well, we actually can, with five centimeters of precision. Can we predict the eye color? Yeah, we can. 80% of accuracy. Okay, just to break in for a sec. By yeah, using big data, Ricardo and his team can take a random sample of DNA, pick through billions of letters of genetic code, and then predict the height, the eye color, all kinds of physical traits of the person that that DNA came from. They can even assemble those traits into a biologically accurate human face. This is a little complicated, because a human face is cut around million of this letter. We had to learn and teach a machine what is a face, an embedding, compress it. So we take the real face of a subject and we run our, our algorithm, okay? The results that I'll show you right now, this is the prediction we have. So, Ricardo, you are showing this face on the TED stage, and I was there, this uh, computer-generated face of a woman, and it's side by side with her real face, and it was amazingly accurate. Yeah, that's what uh, we are up to, to trace uh, the information from the books uh, to the body. And this is the biggest challenge of the millennia. So why do we do this? We do it because the same technology and the same approach the machine learning of this code is helping us to understand how we work, how your body works, how your body ages, how disease generates in your body, how your cancer grows and develops, how drugs work, and if they work on your body. It's called personalized medicine. It is a particularly complicated challenge. The more we will learn, every time we will be confronted with decisions that we never had to face before, about life, about death, about parenting. This must be a global conversation. We must start to think the future we are building as a humanity, without fear, but with the understanding that the decisions that we will take in the next year will change the course of history forever. In the future, Ricardo says, the same technology that can predict a face from a DNA sample today could be used to predict and treat disease. In fact, some of that future is already here. You might have even heard about technology that allows anyone to sequence their genome and identify potential health problems. But as with any massive data set, interpreting that information is pretty tricky. So, so you've had your uh, genome sequence, right? You've done this. 
I did. I did. And it was uh, an interesting time. What happened? Yeah. So I, I mean, I had a couple of interesting results, some, some cardiovascular uh, complications that are, let's say, present in my family, but we've never been able to explain. And so there is this information, even for a professional, it's not something you should read by yourself because yeah. at the beginning I was, oh my God, I'm going to die tomorrow. You freaked out. <laughs> yeah. but Yeah, it's to... understandable, right? I mean, there's all this information staring you right in the face. But, it, but in reality, when you, when you chat with a doctor and you are in, in a clinic, you discover that it's something that, uh, that medicine developed lots of uh, therapeutics around it. And I would uh, rather prefer to know it than not. Because not means uh, not taking actions and letting the roll of the dice uh, know when uh, on or how your complications are growing. Now, I have a control of it. Yeah. So, so when you when you look down the the road, like five or ten or or twenty years from now, right? How will the world be different? I mean, because humans will finally have unlocked the ability to to read and analyze and and maybe even change the, the biggest source of data in the world, which is our genome. So we, we survive and we have a medicine that is amazing today and what we, we believe is amazing. But in 20 years, personalized medicine will really take the lead. It means every doctor and every pill that we will ever take, we will know exactly if we will work or not for our genome and for our body. And it will be so embedded in the mind of our future generation that our kids will laugh at us on how we survive on a medicine that is not based on these assumptions. And it will be a cultural moment where precision medicine will be the verb. And, and the past will look like we were in, in the caves trying to understand how to switch on the fire. Data scientist Ricardo Sabatini you can see his entire talk and how his team can predict faces from DNA at TED.com. So, okay, big data, as Ricardo just made it pretty clear, can help us do incredible things. But sometimes the conclusions we draw from data aren't perfect. A friend of mine tells a wonderful story um, about drowning deaths and ice cream consumption. This is data analyst Susan Ettlinger, who we heard from earlier in the show. And she says, if you were to plot the data for drowning deaths and ice cream consumption over a given year... Apparently, they correlate beautifully. In other words, when deaths by drowning increase... So does ice cream consumption. And when deaths by drowning decrease, so does ice cream consumption. And you start to think, well, do people tend to drown, you know, because they didn't listen to their grandma and they went into the water after they ate the ice cream? Uh, do people tend to eat more ice cream to get over their grief uh, about people drowning? You know, what's the story? You can imagine the headline, right? Ice cream causes drowning. And just by looking at the data, you could plausibly come to that conclusion. But it would be the wrong conclusion because, of course, correlation doesn't always mean causation. There's something the data isn't considering. The common factor is called summer, <laughs> in which both things happen. And so if you don't have the context that there's a season and it's called summer in which it gets warm and people tend to like to swim and eat ice cream, then you miss the meaning. And that's a simple example, but imagine that compounded in everything that we know. The idea here is that as we enter into this age where we rely more and more on machines to make decisions, Susan says we need to be more careful that there's a lot that can go wrong in the space between gathering information and then interpreting it. So in one view of the world, if the algorithm understands the concept of seasons because we've trained it that there are seasons and that January is in the winter and June is in the summer, then yes, that would be fine. But you know, we're in a world now where machines are learning with no previous context. And so we actually have to start from the very beginning and tell them all the things that we sort of know intuitively. So does that mean that, that we're giving too much credit to data? Like, are we entering a future where people can say, hey, the data is telling us this, but, but actually it's still so early in the data revolution that we're just seeding ground to people who say, well, here's the data, end of story. See, I think we've always done that. We've always used data 
to kind of end the conversation. It's like a blunt instrument. It is. It's absolutely a blunt instrument. It can be used well. It can be used poorly. And we do need to be better critical thinkers so that people are responsible consumers of data and responsible producers of data. Because you can draw the wrong conclusions from a three-question survey you know, just as easily as you can from, you know, terabytes of data. And that's on us. You know, that's not about technology. That's not about the Internet. That's on us. Susan told another story about how the data doesn't always give all the details in her TED Talk. My um, son Isaac, when he was two, was diagnosed with autism. The metrics on his developmental evaluations, which looked at things like the number of words, at that point, none, communicative gestures, and minimal eye contact, put his developmental level at that of a nine-month-old baby. And the diagnosis was factually correct, but it didn't tell the whole story. And about a year and a half later, when he was almost four, I found him in front of the computer one day, running a Google image search on women, <laughs> spelled W-I-M-E-N. <laughs> and I did what any, you know, obsessed parent would do, which is immediately started hitting the back button to see what else he'd been searching for. <laughs> and they were in order men, school, bus, and computer. And I was stunned because we didn't know that he could spell, much less read. And so I asked him, Isaac, how did you do this? And he looked at me very seriously and said, typed in the box. He was teaching himself to communicate, but we were looking in the wrong place. And this is what happens when assessments and analytics overvalue one metric, in this case, verbal communication, and undervalue others, such as creative problem solving. It's, it's amazing because it really does speak to this idea that, that data can tell you things, but human understanding, human nuance is so different. That's right. I mean, and, and I think, you know, in, in Isaac's case, uh, you know, I'd say to my friends, you know, is he gaslighting us? <laughs> like, we feel like there's something going on that he's not able to express in sort of conventional ways. And the tests couldn't really detect that. But but when he when he sat down with Google that very first time, it became clear that he was doing some problem solving that was not what people would normally have expected, and therefore it didn't show up on a test. And so once we had this sort of different perspective on him, that in fact he was solving problems just not in a conventional way, we thought, well, okay, what other problems can we solve in, a, in an unconventional way? And that kind of led us to a way of supporting him that we, we might not have come to otherwise. So how do we approach data with a healthy amount of skepticism, but still use it for good? More from data analyst Susan Ettlinger in just a moment, and more ideas about big data. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Capital One, who believes a good credit score can keep your mind at peace. You work hard making smart financial decisions at every point. Keep your credit strong with the CreditWise app from Capital One. With CreditWise, you can view your TransUnion credit score and get alerts each time your credit is pulled and when your credit report changes. And CreditWise is free for everyone, whether you're a Capital One customer or not. So download the free CreditWise app today to find a state of credit enlightenment. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage gives you confidence when it comes to buying a new home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com ideas. Jessica? Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about big data. 
there is so much of it in the world, and our technology can collect more of it than ever before. But we've been hearing from data analyst Susan Etlinger, who argued in her TED Talk that data doesn't create meaning. People do. And that's where things get tricky. So as business people, as consumers, as patients, as citizens, we have a responsibility, I think, to spend more time focusing on our critical thinking skills. Why? Because at this point in our history, as we've heard, we can process exabytes of data at lightning speed. And we have the potential to make bad decisions far more quickly, efficiently, and with far greater impact than we did in the past. And so what we need to do instead is spend a little bit more time on things like the humanities and sociology and the social sciences, rhetoric, philosophy, ethics, because they give us context that is so important for big data and because they help us become better critical thinkers. Because after all, if I can spot a problem in an argument, it doesn't much matter whether it's expressed in words or in numbers. And this means teaching ourselves to find those confirmation biases and false correlations and being able to spot and make an emotional appeal from 30 yards. Because something that happens after something doesn't mean it happened because of it. As my high school algebra teacher used to say, show your math. Because if I don't know what steps you took, I don't know what steps you didn't take. And if I don't know what questions you asked, I don't know what questions you didn't ask. And it means asking ourselves, really, the hardest question of all. Did the data really show us this? Or does the result make us feel more successful and more comfortable? I mean, speaking with, with Ken earlier, right, with Ken Kukier, what he's basically saying is that this is where we're heading. We are heading to a world of massive amounts of data that will be processed and used to make our lives better. And yes, there may be some downsides, but the upsides of it will just vastly outweigh any potential fallout. I hope so. But I also think that it isn't as simple as just saying, if we have more data, it's going to be better. And I'll give you an example. So in the UK, there was uh, an app developed by the Good Samaritans called Samaritan Radar. This was about a year or so ago. And the idea was that if you're on Twitter, if one of the people that you follow tweets something to the effect that they're depressed or they feel hopeless, that it would send you an alert. And the alert would say, you know, your friend so-and-so is having a rough day today. You uh, might want to reach out to them, see if they're okay. And so that's now available somewhere on a server. Well, what if their employer sees that? What if their insurer sees that and they lose their insurance? What if a cyber bully sees that? What if, what if, what if, what if, right? And so I'm not saying that we don't do good things with data just because something bad might happen. But I do think we need to start thinking about the scenarios as we continue to automate the ways in which we make these decisions or we build these systems. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you could imagine data being totally manipulated to intentionally harm people, right? Like Mm -hmm. changing someone's data to frame them for a crime. Yeah. And this is, I think, what makes this conversation so important. Anytime we have new technology, you know, anytime in history, whether it's the radio, which was, you know, at the time, some people thought it was the downfall of civilization, (laughs) um, or it's television for the same thing, or the internet, back probably to the, the Gutenberg press we stop and we worry that something is going to happen, something essential is being taken from humanity. And I think what we need to do, though, is to think about the ways in which the technology can serve us, but also, you know, be mindful of, you know, and have a set of principles that govern the way that we will and we won't use data. Susan Etlinger, she's a data analyst. You can see her entire TED Talk at TED.com. Today on the show, ideas about big data, how to make sense of it, and how it's transforming the way we live, our understanding of the world, and beyond. And when it comes to the study of our universe, the data hasn't always been that big. So in 1929, Edwin Hubble proved the universe was expanding, 
And he proved this using measurements from just 24 different galaxies. That's right. He showed that the further the galaxies were away, the faster that they were expanding. From this came the idea that the universe itself was expanding. This is astronomer Andrew Connolly. I work on the interaction between telescopes that survey the sky and big data. Andrew says the idea that everything in the universe was expanding gave rise to another idea, which was the Big Bang. A big idea from that small data set of 24 galaxies. And then 70 years after Hubble, something similar happened. That's right. When two teams of scientists were studying supernovae. Supernova are exploding stars. The final throws of a star as it explodes and brightens. So you can see them to great distances. And so we could measure how far away those supernovae were. Hmm. And so what they found that these supernovae were slightly further than they expected. And that meant that the universe had to be slightly larger than expected, which meant that the universe had to be accelerating. The expanding universe was accelerating. Now, this idea was crazy, but true. And it came from studying just 42 exploding stars. But I think it took him about three years over time to collect those 42 supernovae. That sounds like a really long time for such a small data set. Well, they had to look through thousands of galaxies to find those 42 supernovae. But it's not a lot of data. Okay, so what if there were a way to collect more data? I mean, even our best telescopes today are really good at looking at specific parts of the sky, but not that good at taking it in all at once. They sort of treat the universe more like a static image than a moving picture. And as Andrew Connolly explained in his TED Talk, that's a problem. The universe is anything but static, constantly changes on timescales of seconds to billions of years. Galaxies merge, they collide at hundreds of thousands of miles per hour. Stars are born, they die, they explode in these extravagant displays. In fact, 10 supernova per second explodes somewhere in our universe. If we could hear it, it would be popping like a bag of popcorn. But the telescopes we've used over the last decade are not designed to capture the data at this scale. So this is driving us to new technologies and new telescopes. Telescopes that can go faint to look at the distant universe, but also telescopes that can go wide to capture the sky as rapidly as possible. What Andrew Connolly is describing is a brand new kind of telescope, one that he and a team of scientists are working on right now on a remote mountaintop in Chile. And it's a telescope that uses big data unlike any telescope before. So instead of measuring 42 supernovae over three years... We should be finding about 500 to 1,000 supernovae every night. Wow. So millions within 10 years. I mean, it, it means that the rate of discovery is about to explode. The rate of discovery will explode and scales with the amount of data that we're collecting. And the telescope making this all possible? It's called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. Possibly the most boring name ever <laughs> for one of the most fascinating experiments in the history of astronomy. Or LSST for short. We're building the LSST we expect it to start taking data by the end of this decade. I'm going to show you how we think it's going to transform our views of the universe. Because one image from the LSST is equivalent to 3,000 images from the Hubble Space Telescope. Each image, three and a half degrees on the sky, seven times the width of the full moon. Well, how do you capture an image at this scale? Well, you build the largest digital camera in history. Using the same technology you find in the cameras in your cell phone or in the digital cameras you can buy in the high street, but now at a scale that's five and a half feet across, about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. So if you wanted to look at an image in its full resolution, just a single LSST image, it would take about 1,500 high-definition TV screens. And this camera will image the sky, taking a new picture every 20 seconds, so every three nights, we'll get a completely new view of the skies above Chile. Over the mission lifetime of this telescope, it will detect 40 billion stars and galaxies. And that will be for the first time we'll have detected more objects in our universe than people on the Earth. Now we can talk about this in terms of terabytes and petabytes and billions of objects. But a way to get a sense of the amount of data that will come off this camera 
is that it's like playing every TED talk ever recorded simultaneously, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 10 years. And to process this data means searching through all of those talks for every new idea and every new concept, looking at each part of the video to see how one frame may have changed from the next. And this is changing the way that we do science. But as we enter this era of big data, what we're beginning to find is there's a difference between more data being just better and more data being different, capable of changing the questions we want to ask. Here's why the LSST and all of the data it will collect can help scientists ask bigger questions about our universe. When you or I look up at the sky at night, we're not just looking into space. We're actually looking back in time. Because the nearest star is what four, about just a little bit more than four light years away. Hmm. So the light you see from that is actually what that star was producing four years ago. If we're looking out at uh, near, nearby galaxies like Andromeda, we're looking back a few million years to the most distant galaxies where we're looking back billions of years. Astronomers are almost like the ultimate historians. It's so crazy to, to think that this enormous telescope is, is going to be capturing all this stuff that's already happened. Yeah, millions of years ago, billions of years ago. So what kind of mysteries could we solve with, with all the data that we're going to get that we couldn't get before? So the aspect about this telescope is that it's not designed just to answer one question. It's designed to provide a census of our universe. And so that means that we can understand the expansion of our universe, how rapidly it's expanding, what is it that's driving that expansion, what is dark energy, dark matter, the distribution of stars within our own galaxy, how our galaxy, the Milky Way, grew. We'd be able to understand the solar system, right? Yeah. The properties of objects within the solar system, you know, how our solar system formed, how water came onto, onto the planet Earth. No matter how much data we get, there's always new questions to ask. But how do, you, how do you make sense of all that data? I mean, you said looking at one photo from the LSST would, would take like 1,500 HD TVs. I mean, how do you even begin to look at a photo like that? Well, we can't. I mean, what's it, when we actually process the data, when, so we have thousands of computers. So as the data comes off that camera, it gets swept into thousands of computers that are processing and, and calibrating and detecting objects. It's like if you took an image of a crowd and you wanted to pick out all the faces in the crowd, or all the yeah. people in the crowd, or to find the pictures where two people are closest together. That's how we process the data, and we have to be able to look at the images, not with our eyes, but with algorithms, and find anything that's moved or changed and characterize it. And these images are public, um, and that means not just to astronomers, that means that if you looked at one of these images, you may be the first person to see that part of the sky. It took three years to find just 42 supernovae because the telescopes that we build could only survey a small part of the sky. With the LSST, we get a completely new view of the skies above Chile every three nights. In its first night of operation, it will find 10 times the number of supernovae used in the discovery of dark energy. This will increase by 1,000 by within the first four months. 1.5 million supernovae by the end of its survey. Each supernova testing which theories of dark energy are consistent and which ones are not. Until hopefully, at the end of this survey, around 2030, we'd expect to hopefully see a theory for our universe, a fundamental theory for the physics of our universe to gradually emerge. But if looking through tens of thousands of galaxies revealed 42 supernova that turned our understanding of the universe on its head, when we're working with billions of galaxies, how many more times are we going to find 42 points that don't quite match what we expect? What's so exciting about the next decade of data in astronomy is we don't even know how many answers are out there, answers about our origins and our evolution, 
How many answers are out there to questions that we don't even know that we want to ask? Thank you. Does this mean, Andrew, that um, we don't have a whole lot left to learn from, you know, like the old version of of the telescope, like the kind I look through with my son in, in my backyard? Or is, no, I mean, is, the, is the universe just so complicated now that, that big data is the only way to understand this? No. I think big data adds into that. So big data allows us to identify interesting objects that then you, we may take individual telescopes to target, to look at them in much more detail. In fact, the fact that these data are public means that the LSST could announce um, the discovery of an object and you or your son, could go and look at that object with your backyard telescope, Hmm. make a measurement, and tell us what it is. And so I don't think big data is the only way. I think big data enables much more science. And these data will let us understand how we formed, how our solar system formed, how... You know, we came into being now to understand our place in the universe. Andrew Connolly is an astronomer at the University of Washington. His TED Talk is at TED.com, and the LSST, the Large Synaptic Survey Telescope, is expected to be completed by 2019. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on Big Data this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. If you want to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Sanaz Meshkanpour, with help from Rachel Faulkner and Daniel Shukin. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us at tedradiohour at npr.org, and you can follow us on Twitter. It's at tedradiohour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sam Sanders here. I love Thanksgiving, and I also love horror stories. Bad feelings erupted, and dinner was over. <laughs> like, just over? Yep, just over. People left the table. The only one still left was my grandma, who had her hearing aid turned off. <laughs> Thanksgiving Horror Stories, this week on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Download on Thanksgiving morning, wherever you get your podcast.